Hello, the opening music we used today was from Spring from the Four Seasons by Vivaldi. I played this optimistically, hoping the weather will become more spring-like than it has been so far. At the present moment, it's raining outside and we've, dare I say, had to wait for a while. <laughs> uh, this April edition of your magazine is, as always, being recorded here in Colin Chance House, deep in the heart of Worcester, and my name is Barry Hurd. Once again, and stating the obvious, this spectacular can't be sent to you without the wonderful people who will copy this magazine onto those little tiny sticks you are listening to right now, and they are Janet Weaver and Carol Hartle. Also, this magazine, along with countless copies of older magazines and the Talking Newspaper, can be heard by logging on to the Worcester Talking Newspaper website. Website? Website? Website. The website is a comparatively new thing, and you can log into it and hear old editions, new editions, and extra things that have been put on there that have never been sent out on the sticks. So there's other articles on that website that can never been that have never been recorded on the sticks that you get in the post. Also, as usual, in the high tech control room here at Colin Chance House, behind his big glass window through which he gives us his guidance by comprehensive use of various fingers. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> However, <laughs> he can be occasionally seen uh, shaking his head in despair as we do sometimes do wrong things like rustling papers or whispering while someone else is talking or worse, knocking the microphones. <laughs> and that's, however, our ever-cheerful engineer, techie and backbone of the talking newspaper for 40 years, Duncan Wynn. Sadly for us all, Duncan, after his 40 years of service, is slowly taking a step back from the huge workload he has taken on for so long. And when he finally retires, he will be sorely missed. 
and I'd like the four of us to give him a well-deserved round of applause. Yeah. Well done, Duncan. <laughs> Having done that, and he's looking very embarrassed, I'm pleased to say. <laughs> right, around the table with me today are two gentlemen and a lady, and they are... Brian Edwards, Alan Colburn, Kate Hudman, and of course, I'm Barry. Next, all of us have a list of events and birthdays that have occurred during April's in the past. And Brian will start off with the first selection. Indeed, the first three I've got. 15th of April in 1800, Sir James Clark Ross, Scottish explorer of the Antarctic, who discovered the North Magnetic Pole in 1831. Not many people know that. 16th of April, 1889, was the birth of Charlie Chaplin. No need to explain who he was and what he did. Nor the next one, 20th of April, also in 1889, one Adolf Hitler. Over to you, Alan. In the 19th of April, 1775 saw the first battle in the War of American Independence. This took place at Lexington, Massachusetts. The score was Britain 1, colonists nil. In 1912, on the 20th of April, the Irish-born writer Bram Stoker, author of Count Dracula, died at his London home. He was 65. In 1838, on the 22nd of April, the first steamship to cross the Atlantic, which was the British ship, the Sirius, and it arrived at New York after making the crossing in 18 days. Uh, April birthdays again. The 1st of April, 1578, William Harvey. He was an English physician and an anatomist, an anatomist I'm sorry, who explained the circulation of the blood. He was the physician to James I and Charles I. On the 2nd of April, 1914, Sir Alec Guinness, the actor, was born and he won an Oscar for The Bridge Over the River Kwai, which many of you may remember. On the 3rd of April, 1367, King Henry IV, the first Lancastrian King of England, was responsible for suppressing Glendower's rising in Wales and the burning of heretics. April, 1st of April 1662, British King Charles II grants royal patronage to a group of scientists and academics founding the Royal Society of London. The 2nd of April 1801... How dare you do that? That's my computer, I beg your pardon. Admiral Horatio Nuisance Nelson aboard HMS Elephant definitely, defiantly ignores orders from the Commander-in-Chief to withdraw his forces and proceeds to sink the pro-French Danish fleet of its home port of Copenhagen. This is when he said, um, I can't see, you know, he puts the telescope yeah. to his blind eye and says, I can't right. see any I messages. Can't see any <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't blame him. He was, the, apparently the chap in charge at the time was a bit of a, 
Um, it was didn't uh, he, not the brightest. No, no, exactly. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, that, you could say that. Yes, <laughs> April seventeen twenty one. Robert Walpole became the first prime minister of Britain. Uh, prior to that, um, they were called the. Uh, oh, what they what was prime minister? It's on the front door of number ten now. Um, should come on of the of the uh, treasury. Something in the anybody I can't remember. Uh, sorry about that, it's Bruin. Right, well, on the 21st of April, 1816, was the birth of Charlotte Bronte, eldest of the three Bronte sisters and author of Jane Eyre, Villette and Shirley. On the 22nd of April, back in 1707, saw the arrival of Henry Fielding, novelist and playwright and author, amongst other things, of Tom Jones, Joseph Andrews and Amelia. 23rd of April, very significant date, 1564, the birth of one William Shakespeare. But the 23rd of April in 1616 saw the death of a playwright called William Shakespeare, who left behind his wife Anne and two daughters, Judith and Susanna. On the 24th of April, 1858, at the second attempt, the biggest bell in the world, Big Ben, was finally ready for hanging in the clock tower of Westminster Palace in London. On the 25th of April, 1915, in World War I, over 70,000 Australian, New Zealand and British troops met fierce resistance from Turkish forces as they landed at Gallipoli. That was one of the disasters of the war, I think. And on the 26th of April, 1923, the Duke of York and Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon, late, later King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, they were married in Westminster Abbey, London. On the 4th of April, 1823, Sir William Siemens, the German-born English electrical engineer and inventor who constructed many overland and submarine telegraphs was born. On the 6th of April 1906, Sir John Betjeman, author, broadcaster and English poet laureate from 1972 until his death in May 1984 was born. On the 7th of April 1770, Another writer, William Wordsworth, English poet, whose work included Ode on the Imitations of Immortality, was born. April 1964, the Beatles filled the first five places in the US singles charts with Please Please Me, I Want to Hold Your Hand, She Loves You, Twist and Shout and Can't Buy Me Love. It's not a bad achievement really, is it? <laughs> 6th of April... 1199, Richard the Lionheart of England dies from a wound inflicted uh, while besieging Chaloux's castle. I believe the chap that shot him was just an ordinary uh, crossbowman, and before Richard died he forgave him, but the chap uh, who was the enemy, obviously, in charge of the castle, had him, had him killed for, for killing Richard. Mm. Strangely enough, you know, you'd think he'd be pleased, <laughs> but alas, no. 
uh, April the 7th, uh, 1739, travellers throughout England breathed a sigh of relief, safe in the knowledge that the most notorious of highwaymen, Dick Turpin, was hanged in York. I think, uh, do you want to go one more round? Yeah, one more round, I think. Yes, one more round. Go back. 24th of April 1906 was the birth of one William Joyce, <laughs> later much better known as Lord Haw Haw. Germany calling. American born British traitor who made the propaganda broadcasts for Germany during World War II. On the 25th of April, back in 1599, saw the birth of one Oliver Cromwell who became Lord Protector of England, 1653 to 1658. And on the 26th of April, 1894, saw the birth of Rudolf Hess, Hitler's deputy in the early part of World War II, eventually imprisoned by the British after he flew on a peace mission to Scotland. Uh, the English naval explorer James Cook arrived in Botany Bay, Australia. He was the first European to do so on the 28th of April, 1770. But on the 29th of April, 1884, Oxford University agreed to admit female students to examinations. However, women were not to be awarded degrees. And on the 30th of April 1945, to bring us almost up to date, in his hideaway bunker in Berlin, Adolf Hitler shoots himself. His wife of 48 hours and former mistress, Eva Braun, took a cyanide capsule. And in accordance with Hitler's instructions, both bodies were then burnt. On the 8th of April 1889, Sir Adrian Bolt was born, conductor closely associated with the works of Elgar, Vaughan Williams and Holst and many others. On the 9th of April 1806, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, most influential engineer of his day whose achievements included the Clifton Suspension Bridge, the SS Great Britain Steamship and the Great Western Railway, Railway Track and lots and lots more. On the 10th of April... 1512, King James V of Scotland was born. He was defeated by Henry VIII's forces at Solway Moss in 1542 and he was succeeded by his daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots. April 1838, and this is more about Brunel. His new steamship, the Great Western, left Bristol today on a maiden voyage across the Atlantic to Boston. Actually, a little bit about uh, Brunel. The Great Western was the only really successful ship he built out of the three. Um, the Great Western was successful to Great Britain until much later on when it was on the Australian run under a completely different com company from the, uh, uh, the Great Western Steamship Company. Uh, the, early on, it was a failure. But there's one good no, two good stories that I can remember from this. Um, the first one was about just an ordinary seaman on board um, that got washed overboard in a storm. And the letter written by um, possibly the captain to his parents was, 
uh, seaman so-and-so was washed aboard this day. Sadly, he was never seen again, nor the mop and bucket that he was working with. <laughs> <laughs> and another extremely lucky seaman um, at a different time was washed overboard in a storm. And seconds later, another wave washed him back on board the ship again. <laughs> So he was far more <laughs> lucky than the other chap. Anyway, uh, another one again about Brunel. April 1806, uh, birthday of English engineer and inventor Isambard Kingdom Brunel, perhaps the greatest of all the 19th century engineers, etc., etc. We had, we had that just now. Uh, 10th of April 1633, bananas never seen before in England went on sale in a London shop. Right, I think we've had enough of those dates and things. Right, we're going to Brian now uh, with some information about a Pitchcroft Spectacular. This is from Memory Lane, uh, July 1985 edition. Indeed. Pitchcroft Spectaculars. In bygone days, Worcester people thronged in their thousands to Pitchcroft to witness mammoth and breathtaking spectacles. They converged on what is now the 100-acre race course to enjoy such things as the wild beast shows, beast shows, giant circuses and huge fun fairs and to look on in awe at their first air balloons and flying machines and to see legendary prize fights. Pitchcroft was the scene too of many a magnificent military parade several grand celebrations of natural events, and even Henry-like regatta gatherings. On January the 7th, 1824, more than 40,000 people packed into Pitchcroft for the celebrated fight between Spring and Langan for the Championship of England. That was in the days long before the Queensbury rules, and pretty much nothing was barred except biting. Alas, this event was marred by tragedy. Uh, during the second round, an overloaded stand collapsed and threw people down 20 feet or so amongst the broken timbers where they were trampled on by others in panic. One person later died of injuries and dozens were carried off to the infirmary with various fractures. The fighters were unaware of this tragedy and continued slugging it out in their barefist epic for no less than another 82 rounds. The contest, event, the contest eventually ended after 2 hours and 32 minutes when Langon was retired as being too weak and exhausted to go on. Later in 1910, another Pitchcroft extravaganza was also to be overshadowed by a terrible accident. One of the world's first early flimsy aeroplanes was booked as the star attraction at the agricultural show in June of that year. Barrow's journal records that very few local people had ever seen a flying machine, so there was considerable frustration amongst the 14,000 crowd when its takeoff was held up by a series of repairs and other problems. By the time the airplane was ready to take to the air, the eagerness of some of the spectators had overpowered discretion. Many crossed and recrossed the track or surged over the ropes alongside the takeoff strip. 
and the outcome of all this was that the aircraft could not get through the crowd cordon and swerved to the right. And a Mrs. Pitt of Hindley took the full impact and died. Several other people had broken limbs. The wings of the plane overturned, wires snapped, propelling chunks of metal into the horticultural tent. Fortunately, there were no such disasters the following year when Colonel Cody came to town and made a series of spectacular flights over Pitchcroft. Another aviator to come to Worcester around this time was a German named Hummel. Local historian Bill William tells the story that the, this predecessor of the Red Baron was later suspected of having gone round on his flights spying mapping out towns and cities as targets for likely invasion. There was another tragedy, though, at Pitchcroft. Later on, in 1928, when a Lieutenant Paul crash-landed in front of the grandstand during a flying display, and he died of his injuries. Mr. William recalls a boy watching the grand military funeral parade up to Astwood Cemetery. He also clearly remembers the excitement in the early 1930s when Alan Cobham brought his flying circus to Pitchcroft, gave citizens spins over the city at five shillings a time. I hadn't got enough money at the time to take this trip, said Mr. William. His historical researches also reveal that late last century, funfairs at Pitchcroft were regularly graced by the Prince of Quacks, a remarkably colourful showman who, dressed as a Sioux Indian chief, held crowns, crowds spellbound with his tales of miraculous cures. He was also reckoned to be the fastest puller of teeth in the business, once tugging out 74 in 57 minutes. He always had a brass band handy to strike up during such operations, presumably to drive out the cries of patience. Right, thank you. Brian. Now, Alan, Brian mentioned Colonel Cody, which I'm not sure was Buffalo Bill. I think it was a relation of Buffalo Bill that, that, that actually was a pilot. But Brian has stories about Buffalo Bill, who definitely visited Worcester early in the 20th century. Yes, indeed. William Frederick Cody, known as Buffalo Bill, was born on February the 26th, 1846. <clears throat> he got his nickname after killing 4,280 buffalo in 18 months. Why? He had a contract to supply meat to the US Army. In the American Civil War, he served on the Union side, fighting for the 7th Kansas Cavalry Regiment. He received the Medal of Honor in 1872 for gallantry in action, while serving as a civilian scout for the 3rd Cavalry Regiment. The medal was taken away from him just before his death because new guidelines meant that civilians were ineligible for it. In, 18, in 1989, the medal was restored to him posthumously. Well, his famous Wild West show toured for more than 20 years. And with the money he made from this, he was able to buy a 4,000-acre ranch in Nebraska. In later years, he became involved in irrigation projects and has a dam named after him in Wyoming. 
Like many famous performers, Buffalo Bill was very reluctant to leave the stage, which explains the fact that he staged two farewell tours of Britain in 1903 and 1904. On both occasions, he brought his world-famous Wild West show to Herefordshire and Worcestershire. On the 1903 tour, he staged the show at Worcester on the 15th of June and another the next night at Kidderminster. Then the show went on to Hereford on the 2nd of July. The following year, on the second farewell tour, he took the Wild West show to Wollaston near Stourbridge, which was a part of Worcestershire at the time. That was on Thursday the 28th of April. Local historian Dr Paul Collins has researched this last show. The show featured Wild West reenactments of events like Custer's Last Stand, Indian raids, scenes from the American Civil War, that sort of thing. He was on what was called his farewell tour of Britain. He'd actually been on a farewell tour the previous year, but it was so successful he thought he'd come back and do another one. He toured the country by train. Actually, there were three trains, and in total, they pulled 55 coaches. The previous night, he'd been at Walsall and done two shows. Following evening, he went to Wellington in Shropshire and did the same two shows. It was a marvel of logistics, the way they got the whole thing round the country. He was received with great delight and great rapture. Everywhere he went, he was absolutely the star. The whole performance was worked out by Phineas T. Barnum, who you may remember as a part of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. What they did was arrive in the town at the railway station and they processed through the town to the field where they were performing. If you'll pardon me while I just turn over the page without making too much of a rattle. Altogether there were 500 horses and 800 people, plus wagons and everything else, with Buffalo Bill on his white horse in his full regalia. There's another more tenuous connection between the Buffalo Bill show and Worcester. One of the first appearances of Cody's earlier troupe, the Buffalo Bill combination, was at Worcester. But it was the one in Massachusetts. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Kate now has some useful advice on anyone that suffers from hay fever, and I think this is just about the right time to give it. Right, now, what have we got? Stay in if it's stormy. Grass pollen is quite large. Each particle measures about 35 microns, which is 0.03 millimetres. But a thunderstorm can break the pollen into smaller pieces that can penetrate airways and cause inflammation, triggering so-called seasonal asthma in people who already suffer from hay fever. The people who have this don't normally have asthma but do get hay fever due to a grass pollen allergy, says Ian Pavord, a professor of respiratory medicine at Oxford University. It causes the typical asthma symptoms, wheezing, coughing and tightness in the chest. But these attacks can even be can even be life-threatening. During June and July, we often have a rush of people admitted to hospital with bad asthma attacks after a thunderstorm. And these are people who don't get asthma for the rest of the year. Professor Pavord says GPs will often prescribe blue reliever inhalers of Ventolin, 
which dilates the airways, but he says these are of little help to those with seasonal asthma. Their symptoms are caused by inflammation, so they need a brown preventer, steroid, inhaler instead. Seasonal asthma can also occur when the pollen count is especially high, typically during late June. Not going out during a thunderstorm might help, says Professor Pavord, but people need to use their brown inhalers during the pollen season. The trouble is they forget to use what they only need for two months of the year. Um, Old-fashioned grapefruit juice. Old-fashioned antihistamines such as chlorphenamine, found in pyriton, for example, block the effect of histamine, but as they can pass into the brain in large quantities, they may also cause drowsiness. Stephen Durham, a professor of allergy and respiratory medicine at the Royal Brompton Hospital and Imperial College London, says the effects are so extreme that it should not be taken before driving. Taking chlorpheniramine is as bad as drinking alcohol. It can cause the same level of drowsiness and have effects for six to eight hours, he says. Newer antihistamines, such as loratadine and sertrazine, do not cause such severe effects. Sertrazine is more effective, but there is a higher risk of drowsiness than with loratadine, says Professor Durham. That is because sertrazine does pass the blood-brain barrier, though not in such large quantities as older drugs. Gosh, this goes on a bit, doesn't it? I think we'll cut a bit out, actually. (laughs) Pollen is released in the morning as the temperature starts to rise and levels are peaking by about 11am, says Dr Adrian Morris, an allergy specialist at the Surrey Allergy Clinic. Convection currents then carry the pollen high into the sky, but it sinks again as the temperature falls in the early evening. It's hard to avoid pollen completely, but you can minimise exposure by doing whatever you need to do outside in the middle of the day, he says. Outside, wear wraparound sunglasses and these will protect the eyes from pollen. People who suffer from hay fever may also get tingling in the mouth and throat and swelling around their lips when they eat certain foods. Some mistakenly believe they have developed a separate food allergy, but in fact they have pollen food syndrome. It's because the protein in the food is similar to proteins in the allergen that triggers a person's hay fever, says Dr Isabel Skyparler, a consultant allergy dietitian at the Royal Brompton and Harefield NHS Foundation Trust in London. The body behaves as if you are eating the pollen. Those who get hay fever from birch pollen may develop a cross reaction to apples, hazelnuts or less commonly soya. Um, it, it goes on a bit, this. I think um, I'm going to cut out quite a bit and uh, just give you some bullet points here. Um, it says, protect your pillows from falling pollen by putting a bedspread over them during the day. This will prevent you from inhaling pollen and rubbing it into your eyes, which can trigger symptoms that stop you sleeping. Also, washing your hair and showering when you come in will also help. Thank you. And uh, as I suffer from hay fever, as does Alan, apparently nodding his head, mm-hmm. I think that was quite helpful. Um, right. Do you have gas central heating in your house? Um, recently uh, Kate here um, has had a new boiler put in and a new fire put in and uh, we had the carbon monoxide warning box 
apparently far too low. It was uh, it should be about a foot down from the ceiling, uh, not any lower than that. Carbon monoxide gases rise, and if you have them too low down, you'll be neatly dead sitting in your chair before they go off. So a warning here, make sure that if you have gas central heating, a gas fire or anything like that, the warning, the, the little monitor that you have is about a foot below the ceiling so it will go off in absolute good time to make sure it saves your life. I think that's good because I didn't know that, Kate didn't know that and I'm sure a awful lot of people don't know that and they have them sitting on the sideboard or something like that or the mantelpiece no good you'll be dead before it goes off um, a serious warning there and now i think brian has something a little bit more light-hearted light <laughs> well a few observations on the human condition that some of these are funny some of them are in fact more than mildly insulting but they all relate to the the human condition life starts out with everyone clapping when you take a poo but it goes downhill from there onwards <laughs> truman capote once observed that in his view life is a moderately good play with a badly written third act a chap called dennis holy reckoned that expecting the world to treat you fairly because you're a good person is like expecting the bull not to attack you because you're a vegetarian. <laughs> Albert Einstein once observed, only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And he wasn't too sure about the former. Woody Allen once observed that those that who can do, those who can't teach, but those who can't teach at all, teach Jim. Hmm. An anonymous comment. To err is human, but to really foul up, you need a computer. <laughs> In The Marriage of Figaro, one of the characters observes at one point on the human condition, drinking when we're not thirsty Making love all year round, madam, is all there is to distinguish us from other animals. Think about it. <laughs> Doug Meredith once made the point that uh, it must be a sign of our times that on Remembrance Day I was asked to observe two-minute silence at my local library. <laughs> Oscar Wilde once said, as he did so many times with great wit, I sometimes think that God, in creating man, somewhat overestimated his own ability. <laughs> a lady called Susan Ertz made a very apposite comment, millions of people long for immortality, and they're the people who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Sunday afternoon. If it stinks, it's chemistry. If it wiggles, it's biology. If it doesn't work at all, it's physics. Man is the only animal that blushes, or needs to, observed Mark Twain. <laughs> Aldous Huxley 
one of his one-liners, think about it, maybe this world is another planet's hell. <laughs> Whereas Bill Watterson commented that the surest sign that intelligent life exists elsewhere in the universe is that it's never tried to contact us. <laughs> Very wise. <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor came out with the comment that the problem with people who have no vices is generally you can be pretty sure they're going to have some pretty annoying virtues. The difference between perseverance and obstinacy is that one comes from a strong will, the other from a strong won't. The former Chancellor of Germany, Konrad Adenauer, once observed that, in his view, history is the sum total of the things that could have been avoided. Like good that, isn't it? <laughs> Somerset Maughan reckoned that the ability to quote is a serviceable substitute for wit. We all know this one, I think. If you look like your passport photo, you're too ill to travel. <laughs> Keith Waterhouse once ventured the view that there is a society of indexers, but really, shouldn't it be known as Indexers Society of The? <laughs> Camping is simply nature's way of promoting the hotel business. <laughs> and finally on this section, on a more serious note, a long but very apposite comment by Andrew Neil following the ISIS terrorist attack in Paris. This is a week in which a bunch of loser jihadists slaughtered 132 innocents in Paris to try to prove that the future belongs to them rather than a civilization like France. Can't say I fancy their chances. France the country of Descartes, Boulay, Monet, Sartre, Rousseau, Camus, Renoir, Berlioz, Cézanne, Gauguin, Hugo, Voltaire, Matisse, Debussy, Ravel, Sanson, Bizet, Sarty, Pasteur, Molière, Zola, Balzac, Poulenc, cutting-edge science, world-class medicine, fearsome security forces, nuclear powers, Coco Chanel, Chateau Lafitte, Coco Vin, Daft Punk, Zizou Zidane, Juliette Binoche, Liberty, Egality, Fraternity, and creme brulee. Versus what? Beheadings, crucifixions, amputations, slavery, mass murder, medieval squalor and a death cult barbarity that would shame the Middle Ages. Well, ISIS or Daesh or ISIS, whatever they want to call by, I'm sticking with ISIS as in Islamist scumbags. I think the outcome's pretty clear to everyone but you. You will lose. In a thousand years' time, Paris, that glorious city of lights, will still be shining bright, as will every other city like it. And you will be as dust, along with the ragbag of fascist Nazis and Stalinists that previously dared to challenge democracy and failed. Brian, I think you forgot Bridget Bardot. <laughs> <laughs> Who could forget Bridget, Bridget Bardot? Bridget Bardot, yeah, exactly. Um, Alan has got a fascinating uh, piece, I think he's going to read in a few seconds, by Daniel Defoe. Best known, of course, as the author of Robinson Crusoe, but during the 1720s, he, he wrote a book called Tour Through the Whole 
island of Great Britain. And, um, of course, he had to visit Worcester on, on, on route round the country. And this is what he wrote. And I think you'll all find it rather interesting. Alan, please. Right. Um, yes, I didn't realise that he'd done this sort of a journey. But um, from Tewkesbury, he, he writes, We went north, 12 miles, to Worcester. All the way still on the bank of the Severn, and here we had the pleasing sight of the hedgerows being filled with apple trees and pear trees and the fruit so common that any passenger as they travel the road may gather and eat what they please. And here, as well as in Gloucestershire, you meet with cider in the public houses, sold as beer and ale is in other parts of England and as cheap. Here we saw at a distance, in a most agreeable situation, the mansion or seat of Sir John Packington, a baronet of a very ancient family, and for so long from father to son, knight of the shire for the county, that he seems as if it was hereditary to that house. On the other side of the Severn, at or near the town of Bewdley, the Lord Foley has a very noble seat suitable to the grandeur of that rising family. Worcester is a large, populous, old, though not very well built city. I say not well built because the town is close and old, the houses standing too thick. The north part of the town is more extended and also better built. There is a good old stone bridge over the Severn, which stands exceeding high from the surface of the water. <coughs> but as the stream of the Severn is contracted here by the buildings on either side, there is evident occasion sometime for the height of the bridge the waters rising to an incredible height in the winter time. Dare I say that nothing seems to change. It narrowly escaped burning, but did not escape plundering at the time when the Scots army, commanded by King Charles II in person, was attacked here by Cromwell's forces. <coughs> it was said that some of the royalist officers themselves proposed setting the city on fire when they saw it was impossible to avoid a defeat that they might the better make a retreat, which they proposed to do over the Severn, and so to march into Wales. But the king, a prince from his youth, of a generous and merciful disposition, would by no means consent to this. I went to see the townhouse, which afforded nothing worth taking notice of, unless it be how much it wants to be mended with a new one which the city, they say, is not so much inclined as they were able and rich to perform. I saw nothing of public notice there but the three figures, for they can hardly be called statues, of King Charles I, King Charles II and Queen Anne. The cathedral of this city is an ancient and indeed a decayed building. The body of the church is very mean in its aspect nor did I see the least ornament about it, I mean on the outside. The tower is low, without any spire, only four very small pinnacles on the corners, and yet the tower has some little beauty in it, more than the church itself too, and the upper part has some images in it, but decayed by time. The inside of the church has several very ancient monuments in it, particularly some royal ones, as that of King John, who lies interred between two sainted bishops, namely St Oswald 
and St. Wollstone. Whether he orders interment, internment in that manner, believing that they should help him up at the last call and be serviceable to him for his salvation, I know not. It is true they say so, but I can hardly think the king himself, so ignorant whatever the people might be in those days of superstition, nor will I say that that may be probable, they may all three go together at last, and yet, without being assistant to, or acquainted with one another at all. Here is also a monument for that famous Countess of Salisbury, who dancing before, or with King Henry III in his great hall at Windsor, Windsor dropped her garter, which the king, taking up, honoured it, honored it so much as to make it the denominating ensign of his new order of knighthood, which is grown so famous and is called the most noble order of the garter. What honour, or that any honour redounds to that most notable order, from its being so derived from the garter of a... For it is generally agreed she was the king's mistress, and I will not inquire further. Certainly the order receives a just claim to the title of Most Noble, for the honour done it by its royal institution, and it's being composed of such a noble list of the kings and princes as have been entered into it. I say certainly this order has just title to that of noble and most noble too, yet I cannot but think that the king might have found out a better trophy to have fixed it upon than the lady's garter. But this by the way, here lies the lady that's certain and a very fine monument she has, in which one thing is more ridiculous than that all went before. That about the monument there are several angels cut in stone, strewing garters over the tomb, as if that passage, which at best had something a little obscene in it, and I mean of the king's taking up of the lady's garter and giving such honours to it, was also a thing to be celebrated by angels. Right, thank you, uh, Alan, for that. I think it's fascinating what uh, Daniel Defoe saw about Worcester there. And he mentioned the origins of the Order of the Garter, and uh, Kate's going to tell us some more about it. The Order of the Garter was the first and remains the most prestigious British Order of Chivalry. It was begun in or around 1348 by Edward III and initially included the monarch and 25 knights. Membership in the Order was intended as a mark of royal favour and a reward for loyalty to the sovereign and for outstanding military service. The legendary beginnings of the Order centre around the figure of Joan, Countess of Salisbury. The story goes that while the Countess, a notable beauty who was rumoured to be the King's mistress, danced at a court function, she, she chanced to lose a garter. King Edward gallantly picked it up and tied it to his own leg. When he observed the snickers of those around him, Edward remarked, Honi soit qui mal y pense. Now, mal y pense. I, I won't, uh, I won't <laughs> pretend that I could... It means, shame on he who thinks evil of this. I would rather read the English version. <laughs> <laughs> this offhand remark became the motto of the order. Some modern scholars have suggested that the garter may have originated with the leather straps used to fasten pieces of armour. 
Given the military focus of the order, that seems a likely, if less romantic, possibility. There is nothing to specifically disprove the above story, but it seems equally likely that the order was a considerable, considered attempt by Edward to provide a focus for loyalty towards the monarch among his leading nobles. Edward was well aware of the growing cult of St Denis in France and thought that providing his own realm with a national saint tied to the monarchy would only benefit his own position and solidify the ever precarious loyalty of his nobles. Insignia of the Order This, at roughly the same time that the Order of the Garter was founded, Edward proclaimed St oh, George as the patron saint of England and the Order. Aside from the blue garter worn below the left knee, the first insignia of the order was the George, a badge depicting St George slaying a dragon. St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle was named the spiritual home of the order. Every June, an official gathering of the order is held at Windsor Castle, and at that time any vacancies are filled with new members. The monarch and royal members of the order attend an official luncheon at the Waterloo Chamber, after which they walk in procession to a service at the chapel. At at this writing, royal members of the order include Queen Elizabeth, Prince Philip, Prince Charles and Princess Anne. Thank you, Kate. Um, I just wondered if people people at home had got um, the new Amazon... Echo. Um, my son recently got me one of these, and uh, they're, they're brilliant. They're, they're very useful, and um, I'll just give you a few uh, ideas of what they can do. You can ask them to play any one of, uh, I suppose, thousands and thousands of tunes from classical to pop, um, and uh, you get the first month free, and then it's three ninety nine. Following that, for subsequent months. You can uh, play quizzes with it. Uh, you can get it to make lists. You can do. You can ask it for the news. You can ask it for the weather. It's just there, and it's just company. And you, once it's set up, it just does more or less anything you want. You want it to. Uh, if you've got it set up properly, uh, completely, you can ask it to telephone people, and you can just talk with it. It's, it's brilliant, and it might be useful to you all. Uh, just in, I think the, the the cheaper ones are under forty pounds. Then they go up to around seventy pounds, and I think the most expensive of them all are just above eighty to ninety pounds. They've got wonderful speakers in. They've got microphones all the way around. There's seven or eight microphones in them, so you can talk to them from any direction, and they are really very very good. So you know, that's advertising over. <laughs> Brian, you've right, got one yes. of one of your own again. Well, it's um, the oldie magazine has a regular monthly competition, and a recent edition invited contributors to submit poems entitled "Common Sense." So just here's uh, three fairly short poems from the winning entries in this particular competition. It's common sense, it must be said, to make the most of every minute. All too soon we'll end up dead. We must live life to the limit. To make the most of every minute, before our wits start to unravel, we must live life to the limit, enjoy good friends, find food and travel. 
Before our wits start to unravel and our bodies left sans everything, enjoy, good friends, find food and travel. Forget the kids inheriting. Our bodies left sans everything. All too soon we'll end up dead. So forget the kids inheriting. It's common sense, it must be said. And the next one. Yes, I remember common sense when stating facts was no offence, when teachers teaching X and Y were confident of how and why, when those who terrorised the nation could not apply for compensation or having got it by some error were not allowed to cause more terror, when children who behaved as brats were given more than friendly chats when it was not considered odd for bishops to believe in God. With common sense was how we acted, but that approach has been retracted. Yes, I remember common sense, but it's absent in the present tense. And lastly, a little sad but nevertheless romantic little poem in a way. If only I had used my common sense, I could have seen that you were not for me. Our differing outlook should have been a fence, but love or lust, whatever it may be, pulled us together. Now decades on I smile on thinking of the things that we have done, the rows we've often had, the nights of bile, the tears. Neither of us ever won an argument, but... Somehow, we still plod towards old age, walking side by side, fighting battles with ill health and God. It seems a calm and peaceful life denied. Common sense would have split us from the start. But what does common sense know of the heart? Thanks, Brian. And Alan, I believe you've got some of your own material you brought along. Yes, um... When I was at school, I I didn't go much on history. Um, I don't know why, it was just one of those things. But I came across this re recent article, and um, I rather like it. It's called, it's entitled A History Lesson for People Who Think That History Doesn't Matter. Now, what's the big deal about railway tracks? The United States Standard Railroad Gauge that's the distance between the rails, is 4 feet 8.5 inches. Now that's an exceedingly odd number. Why was that gauge used? Well, because that's the way they built them in England, and English engineers designed the first US railroads. So why did the English build them like that? Well, because the first rail lines were built by the same people who built the wagon tramways and that's the gauge they used. Okay, so why did they use that gauge then? Because the people who built the tramways used the same jigs and tools that they had used for building wagons which used that same wheel spacing. And why did the wagons have that particular odd wheel spacing? Well, if they tried to use any other spacing, the wagon wheels would break more often 
on some of the old long distance roads in England. You see, that's the spacing of the wheel ruts that they made in the ground. So who built those old rutted roads? Imperial Rome built the first long distance roads in Europe, including England, for their legions. Those roads have been used ever since. And what about the ruts in the roads? Roman war chariots formed the initial ruts, which everyone else had to match or run the risk of destroying their wagon wheels. Since the chariots were made for Imperial Rome, they were all alike in the matter of wheel spacing. Therefore, the United States Standard Railroad gauge of 4 feet, 8.5 inches, is derived from the original specifications for an Imperial Roman War chariot. Bureaucracies live forever. So, the next time you're handed a specification stroke procedure stroke process and wonder what horse's ass came up with this, you may be exactly right. Imperial Roman army chariots were made just wide enough to accommodate the rear ends of two war horses. Now, the twist to the story. When you see a space shuttle sitting out on its launch pad, there are two big booster rockets attached to the sides of the main fuel tank. These are solid rocket boosters, or SRBs. Now, these SRBs are made by Thiokol at their factory in Utah. The engineers who designed the SRBs would have preferred to make them a bit fatter. But the SRBs had to be shipped by train from the factory to the launch site. The railroad line from the factory happens to run through a tunnel in the mountains and the SRBs had to fit through that tunnel. The tunnel is slightly wider than the railroad track and the railroad track, as you now know, is about as wide as two horses behinds. So, a major space shuttle design feature of what is arguably the world's most advanced transportation system was determined over 2,000 years ago by the width of a horse's ass. And you thought that being a horse's ass wasn't important. Well, ancient horses' asses control almost everything, and current horses' asses are controlling everything else. Thank you very much, Alan. And uh, Kate, what have you got for us? I've got one or two light-hearted um, little anecdotes here that might make you smile. This is entitled The Chapters of Life. The four stages of man are infancy, childhood, adolescence and obsolescence. This is another one, childhood, the time of life when you make funny faces in the mirror, middle age, the time of life when the mirror gets even. <laughs> the young and old have all the answers. These in between are stuck with the quest those in between are stuck with the questions. I was always taught to respect my elders and I've now reached the age when I don't have to respect anybody. <laughs> and these are labelled ancient. 
He's so old that when he orders a three-minute egg, they ask for the money up front. (laughs) You know you're getting old when you can't go into an antique shop without someone trying to buy you. He's so old his blood type was discontinued. And she was so old when she went to school, they didn't have history. (laughs) I like that one. He's so old, he gets winded playing checkers. I think that'll do for for ancient remarks. I've got one or two that children have have, uh, blundered with, with um, writing uh, the spoken word or trying to write things that their teachers have asked them to put. Uh, How about this one? In Scandinavia, the Danish people come from Denmark, the Norwegians come from Norway, and the lap dancers come from Lapland. (laughs) I thought that was rather good. Uh, And there's one more I was going to perhaps quote to you. Um, The two cars sped down the road. The crooks had stolen the Jagger, but the police were catching up fast with their top-of-the-range granddad. (laughs) (laughs) And here's a cheeky one. And now, declared Mr. Scarlet Jones, I shall read your uncle's last will and testicle. <laughs> no more of those. Um, this is a bit more serious. Um, about Professor Stephen Hawking, who has sadly died um, just recently. Wonderful man. Professor Stephen Hawking has won permission to take Jeremy Hunt and NHS England to court over controversial proposals to restructure the health service. Mr Hunt has tabled a plan that could allow commercial companies to run health and social services across a whole region in what critics described as backdoor privatisation. Leading healthcare professionals and Professor Hawking argue that an Act of Parliament is required allowing MPs and Lords to scrutinise the proposals before the policy is implemented. Lawyers from the Health Department and NHS England rejected these claims, but a court has now ruled that a full judicial review will be granted to determine the lawfulness of Mr Hunt's proposals. Under Mr Hunt's plans, the boundaries between different parts of the NHS that pay for and provide care, such as hospitals, GPs and clinical commissioning groups, would be dissolved. Responsibility for patients in these areas would be held by new healthcare overseers called Accountable Care Organisations, ACOs. These new bodies could choose to either subcontract the service or provide it themselves. Campaigners say this would allow ACOs to control the allocation of NHS money, but their accountability for spending it and their obligations to the public would be under commercial contracts, not part parliamentary statutes. Uh, some observations relating to people, politicians and government. It is a peculiarity of our times. We want politicians to be more human. Then when they screw up, we demand that they be more professional. Leslie Lever once commented, Generosity is part of my character. I therefore hasten to assure this government I will never make an allegation of dishonesty against it whenever a simple explanation of stupidity will suffice. 
Eugene McCarthy once observed that being in politics is like being a football coach. You have to be smart enough to understand the game and dumb enough to think that it's important. Mr Gladstone once observed, I think in exasperation, no party in Ireland is prepared to accept anything at all except the impossible. Robert Frost commented that in his view, a liberal is a man too broad-minded even to take his own side in a quarrel. Oliver Cromwell, once facing a noisy crowd of admirers shouting wonderful, positive things about him, rather sourly observed, the people would be just as noisy if they were going to see me hanged. Here's a comment to think about. True terror is waking up one morning and realising that your, some of your old school friends are now running the country. <laughs> <laughs> Tebbit once said to Dennis Skinner, it is far better to keep your mouth shut and let everyone think you're stupid than to open it and leave no doubt. <laughs> Charles de Gaulle once said that since a politician never believes what he says, he is surprised when others believe him. A US political campaign organiser said that in his view, politics is the gentle art of getting votes from the poor and campaign contributions from the rich by promising to protect each from the other. That's quite deep, <laughs> that, isn't it? Yes. But Aniram Bevin was rather scathing always about Clement Attlee, who he thought was far too calm and far too soft. In his view, Clement Attlee brings to the fierce struggle of politics the tepid enthusiasm of a lazy summer afternoon at a cricket match. George Burns uh, put forward the view that he felt that it was very, it was all too bad that all the people who know how to run the country are far too busy driving taxis and cutting hair. <laughs> Simon Jenkins thought that it would be easier to cancel a nuclear submarine than a civil servant's parking space. <laughs> Parkinson's law founder, Cecil Parkinson, observed that it is now clearly known men only enter local politics solely as a result of being unhappily married. Hmm. Auburn War was rather cynical in observing that in his view politicians can forgive almost anything in the way of abuse, they can forgive subversion, revolution, being contradicted, exposed as liars, even ridiculed. The one thing they can never forgive is being ignored. And the great wit and writer from America, H.L. Mencken, said, for every difficult, intractable problem, there is always a solution that's neat, plausible, and usually wrong. Bertrand Russell, just a simple one-liner, in his view, democracy is the process by which people choose whom to blame. <laughs> a committee, of course, is simply a group of people who individually had thought that nothing was there. But as a group, they decided, no, 
nothing at all can be done. John Quinton, a rather cynical banker, thought that politicians who people, when they see the light at the end of the tunnel, simply order more tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, and this is the last one in this section, no, last but one, um, said, in her view, consensus is the process of abandoning all beliefs, principles, values and policies in search of something in which no one believes. <coughs> William Armstrong, who was head of the civil service um, in the 60s and 70s, his view was that the business of the civil service is the orderly management of decline. Whereas Kaskastinit thought that a definition of a diplomat is a person who can tell you to go to hell in such a way you actually look forward to the trip. <laughs> And Bernard Levin had a rather cynical view on liberation. He said, I've more than once pointed out, no organisation with liberation in its title has ever or ever will liberate anyone or anything. And I think that's enough of politics and politicians. Thank you, Brian. Next bit. Kate was talking about, um, in her piece, about the penalties of getting older. Mm. And um, I'd like to continue that with this little story. Um, it says that it's a good job I'm retiring. Well, I've retired ages. The memory is not getting as good as it was. And the family suggested I should get in the habit of writing things down. So I left the computer for a while to ask Dot if she wanted anything whilst I was in the kitchen. Can you get me a bowl of ice cream, please, she said. Don't you think you should write it down so you can remember it, she adds. No, I can remember it, said I. Well, I'd like some strawberries on top too. Perhaps you should write that down as well so you don't forget it. No, I can remember that. You want a bowl of ice cream with strawberries. I'd also like some whipped cream. I'm certain you'll forget that, so write it down, she urges. Irritably, I say, I don't need to write it down. I can remember it. Ice cream with strawberries and whipped cream. I've got it, for goodness sake. It took me about 20 minutes before I returned from the kitchen to hand her a plate of bacon and eggs. She stared at the plate for a moment and then at me and said, where's my toast? <laughs> oh, dear. Are we looking at other things now that are completely different? If you are, I have to report that if you didn't know already, I'm originally from Smethwick. I do try not to boast about it, but um, Smethwick is really a sort of buffer state between Birmingham and the real black country. But it does mean I was brought up with a good knowledge of the, uh, the black country attitude and the personality of the inhabitants. Um, there is a deeply ingrained sense of realism, stroke, pessimism, stroke, caution. Um, for instance, if you say to a black country chap, how are things then, John? The best you'll ever hear is, not too bad, our kid, not too bad. Don't get carried away. If you then say to him, nice bit of weather we're having lately, oh, ah, yeah. I expect we'll pay for it later on, though. And 
The black country personality and sense of caution is best summed up in some ways by the story of the chap who goes into his local pub, sees his mate Charlie at the other end of the bar, sipping his pint of beer, looking rather morose and down uh, down in the dumps. But he goes across and says, Charlie, what's this I hear, our kid? You you won a million on, on the lottery. You really won a million? Oh, ah, says Charlie, it's right enough. Well, you don't seem very happy about it. Well, says Charlie, wouldn't you know it? It's just my luck, he says. It should have been four million, but three other buggers have got winning tickets. (laughs) Don't get carried away. But, of course, no black country story really is proper black country story unless it involves those legendary characters, Enoch and Eli. (laughs) And... Just one or two little ones that might, I hope, not have come across your way before. Enoch is walking down the side of the cut. That's the canal to them, those who don't know these things. Um, And he gets towards a little bridge and and he hears a great hammering noise, a terrible noise. And when he gets there and peeps over the bridge, he can see there's his mate Eli with his barge and his oss. And Eli's knocking great chunks out of the bridge and Enoch says what you doing you old fool well he says Koyo see says me horse he's too big to get under this bridge and Enoch says I always know Joe was saft he says look at this towpath it's just a bit of soft mud you could soon dig a good hole out of that for him to get saft is it says Eli you don't know anything Koyo see it's his bloody head wogu through not his fate <laughs> Another day, Enoch's going down to the pub and he has to pass Eli's house. Now, Eli, at the side of his house, there was a little patch of ground where Eli kept a few chickens. And Enoch says, um, You're standing there. He says, You're coming down the pub? No, says Eli, I've got things to do. And he was just standing by his gate with his arms crossed. Well, Enoch thought no more of it, went down to the pub. An hour or two later, came back. And there was Eli standing just exactly where he'd left him, by his gate, with his arms folded. What you want on about, you old fool, says Eno, what you doing? I'm told you, he says, I'm busy, and if you must know, says Eli, I reckon I'm one well on the way now to winning one of them Nobel Prizes. What, says Enoch, how do you how do you work that out, you old fool? Well, as I understand it, says Eli, them Nobel Prizes am given to people who are outstanding in their field. <laughs> now, the last one of these, and I'll let you off then. Enoch's wife, Eliza Jane, persuaded him, a bit against his will, to pop down to the church one Saturday morning to help out the vicar because there's a big storeroom at the back of the church with a load of old junk, well, a lot of broken chairs and tables and other bits and pieces. And Enoch was just the chap to try and get a bit of sense and order out of it and repair a few of them. So he went down and he... Amongst all the stuff there was an old wooden statue of an angel and all stopped against the corner. Well, Enoch set to work and... He was working on one of the chairs when inevitably he banged his thumb with his hammer. Well, you never heard such language. And it so happened the vicar at that point was walking down the aisle and the vicar 
and this is important for the story, of course, the vicar was a gifted amateur ventriloquist, and he thought, I'll teach Enoch a lesson here. As he approached the storeroom door, he threw his voice as though it was coming from that angel, and the angel said, Enoch, the good Lord hates to hear such language in his house of prayer. The vicar comes in and Enoch says, yeah, Vicar, I'm glad to see you, he says. You'll never believe, you'll not believe, he says. That, that, that ruddy angel's given me a, a right bollocking for swearing in church. And the vicar said, well, Enoch, really, I mean, you must know that the, the good Lord does move in mysterious ways. Yeah, I'm telling me, says Enoch, when I come in here first thing, there was nowhere to hang me jacket. And that angel day say a word when I homered a nail into her backside. Um, Paddy and Mick were walking along a street in London, and I have to say here that other nationalities are available. Paddy looked in one of the shop windows and saw a sign that caught his eye. The sign read, Suits, £5 each. Shirts, £2 each. Trousers, £2.50 a pair. Paddy says to his pal, Mick, look at those prices. We could buy a whole lot of the clothes, and when we get back to Ireland, we can make a fortune. Now, when we go in, you stay quiet, OK? Let me do all the talking, because if they hear our accents, they might think we're thickos from Ireland and try to screw us. I'll put on my best English accent. Right, you are, Paddy. I'll keep my mouth shut so I will. You do all the business, said Mick. So they go in. And Paddy says in his posh voice, Hello, my good man. I'll take uh, 50 suits at £5 each, 100 shirts at £2 each, and 50 pairs of trousers at £2.50 each. And I'll back up my truck ready to load them. The owner of the shop said quietly, You're from Ireland, aren't you? Well, yes, said a surprise Paddy. What gave it away? And the owner replied, this is the dry cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> Very, good. Very good. Oh, thank you all. Um, right. Oh, well, that reminds me of a joke, which uh, I, I, it's very old, so you might have all forgotten it if you've heard it before. But uh, a tailor's answer, um, opened a shop in uh, uh, quite a long street, and he was desperately trying to think of a name. So he said, um, oh, I think I'll have the sign, the best tailors in this country and the tailor down the road thought right I'm going to beat that and he put outside the best tailors in the universe and another chap just down the road thought well I've got to beat that one so he put up the sign the best tailors in the street (laughs) (laughs) right thank you Um, right something new Um, Sorry about this. John Plush, a new volunteer, or comparatively new volunteer, has been out and about. And uh, he was looking at the full programme of entertainment in store for Worcester over the next few months. And uh, he went to look, find, find out where it's coming from and who makes it happen. So uh, this is uh, his report.
And that was Joe Broughton's Conservatoire Folk Ensemble, one of the shows in this season's programme at Huntington Hall in Worcester. They come especially recommended by Chris Yeager, who as Chief Executive of Worcester Live is responsible for so many of the arts events happening in these parts throughout the year. We'll be hearing more from Joe Broughton and his zany crew later, but first I've joined Chris Yeager himself in the nerve centre of Worcester Live. Chris, how did Worcester Live come about? Well, we started with Huntingdon Hall. I took over Huntingdon Hall in 1995, 1st of May, uh, when it was in terrible financial trouble and it was about to close and it was about to to have the keys handed back to the landlord, which is the Crown Estate. And I was brought in. They came to me with a very attractive offer. They said, we've, we've got no staff, we've got no programme, we've got £40,000 worth of debt, no salary. How would you like to be the director? I mean, it was irresistible. That was really my job. So that that happened and we managed to turn that round. It took quite a long time, but we, we did that. And that was just Huntington Hall. In 2002, at the end of 2002, the Swan ran into trouble and we tabled a plan to say if it closed, could Huntington Hall be allowed to take it over? We didn't want it to take Huntington Hall with it if it, if it went down, so we kept them as separate companies. When it became apparent that it was going to work, we then decided that we would just make it one company and we then had to think up a title and originally it was Huntingdon Arts and then we had one or two incidents where artists went to Huntingdon instead of Worcester uh, because of course Huntingdon Hall was named after the Countess of Huntingdon not not the place Um, and so we then thought well let's come up with a name that is is you know what it does on the tin so we we said Worcester Live is what we're about so we changed the name of Huntington Arts and and since then Worcester Live has been the umbrella title for all the things we do they all come under the one umbrella of of Worcester Live. So Chris in addition to running the Swan and Huntington Hall you're also chairman of the English Symphony Orchestra how important is art to a city like Worcester? Oh absolutely essential what people, I think, don't realise is is how important the arts is to any society. It's the soul of any community. And the the that music and dance and drama are, are the very the very essence of, of, of human life. So yes, they're incredibly important. But there is economic implications as well in that Worcester has aspirations to have much more tourism and arts are a very important part of tourism and also people are moving to Worcester they're going to look at schools for their kids but they're also going to look at sports provision and gyms and things and they're going to look at the theatre and and the music and to see so it's part of making a city more attractive and making the community have have a soul. In 2012, you were awarded a fellowship at the University of Worcester. In the following year, you received an MBE from the Queen for services to the arts. How did that make you feel? Oh, well, obviously, it it makes you feel tremendous. Um, I know this will sound trite, but actually the the, the MBE was incredibly important to the organisation for me because, you know, I have a fantastic team of people who work with me and for me. And the success of the arts in Worcester, which is what brought about my MBE, is 
you know, a reward for, for, for the team. You, you know, the staff play a, a huge part in that. And also, when people are, are rewarded with honours, the vast majority of them go to London to big theatres and they go to big-named actors. And so to, to have the Queen, you know, presented on to the head of a, of, of a small venue in Worcester is is very important. The The fellowship from the University of Worcester was, was lovely. We worked closely with, with the university. We are a, a formal partner with them. So to be honoured by, by the university with their sort of top honour, as it were, was, was lovely, and it sort of reflected the relationship between us a bit. Tell us about the new Henry Sandon Hall. Well, this is an exciting new project. Many people listening will remember, will know the, the old Royal Worcester site, and that now is has a new branding, which is the Royal Porcelain Works. It has quite a lot of flats built on it, but it also has the Museum of Royal Worcester. It's now going to have a 150-seater art centre, uh, the Henry Sandon Hall, named, of course, after the great Henry Sandon. It's going to have a wonderful cafe and, and delicatessen shop and all sorts of things going on. It's going to have some artisans working uh, on making painting pots. And the Henry Sandon Hall is going to do film, it's going to do talks, it's going to do acoustic music, it's going to do lots of children and family events, it's going to do auctions and antique fairs and the um, English Symphony Orchestra are going to base there and rehearse there. And when is it open? Last weekend in June, uh, the Saturday, I think it's June the 30th, at 11 o'clock, Henry Sandon is going to cut the ribbon along with the mayor and Colin Kinnear from the Bransford Trust who, who financed the whole thing. There's going to be bands and face painting and it's going to be an exciting venue, yeah. Open Air Theatre at the Commandery. It's a lovely venue. It's a fantastic venue. It's a, a walled garden and since 2007 we've done a two-week outdoor event. We used to call it Shakespeare at the Commandery and for the first eight years we did a Shakespeare which was very popular but we decided we wanted a break from Shakespeare two years ago and we did The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde and then everybody said oh it was fantastic could we have another year off Shakespeare so we did uh, Charlie's Aunt last year so we're now because we do the Shakespeare in the Cathedral as well uh, we, we've decided to stay off Shakespeare for a bit so we now call it the Worcester Rep at the Commandery, and uh, this year we're going to do a spoof of The Hound of the Baskervilles, which I've just finished writing. It's going to be very funny. Uh, there will be a live dog on stage, but it may not be very big or very fierce. That's all I can say at this stage. As long as it's well-behaved. <laughs> as long as it's well-behaved. We suspect it won't, um, but uh, we, we shan't mind that. It'll be funny anyway. I have to ask, what do you do if it rains? Well... Uh, if it rains when we've started, we keep going. If it's a very wet day and it's been raining all day and the forecast is to stay raining, we can take it into the Great Hall at the Commandery. It's a slightly different performance, but it's still good fun. So, what have you got coming up that our listeners might particularly enjoy? Well, uh, we've, well, we've got an auction night on the 14th of May. I meant to mention that. That's that's good. Now, Joe Broughton runs something called the Conservatoire Folk Ensemble. He uh, is arguably the best folk fiddler in, in the country. Um, and some years ago, he was hired by now the Royal Conservatoire of Birmingham. Um, and he works with the classical uh, department of violins and strings and things and, and just 
teaches them to improvise mainly around folk and jigs and reels and things so that they just start to really enjoy the music and then he formed this amazing band if i can call it that called the conservatoire folk ensemble certainly i think the last time they came to hundred hall there were 56 on stage it is a wall of most amazing sound by young energetic talented musicians absolutely brilliant here's an offer for your your listeners if you come to the folk ensemble and don't enjoy it i will refund your money (laughs) <laughs> We've got Vamos Theatre, uh, which is the most wonderful uh, local theatre. Um, Vamos has become one of the top theatre companies in Europe. It's an international company, and, and it's based in Worcester. Absolutely marvellous. So we're their sort of last... They was finished the tour with us as their sort of home theatre. We've got a very interesting show coming on the 1st of June, which is called Showstopper, and it's Olivier Award-winning show from London. And it's... Write a musical on the night. The, the, the cast of six will improvise at the audience's request. They will write a musical about anything, write some songs and, and sort of make it up as they go along. And by the end of the night, they will perform the first and last time ever of whatever the Worcester musical is going to be called. It's brilliantly funny and, and incredibly clever. and I would strongly recommend that. So, Chris, you, you mentioned Joe Broughton and his Conservatoire Folk Ensemble, from whom we heard earlier. And we're going to finish with the band's rather more contemplative piece, Rain and Snow. Do you think we'll be hearing that at Huntington Hall? I would think so, because if it's on, on the new album, people tend to plug what's on the album and play that. But they will play you know, a full concert, two, two probably 50-minute halves. There will be masses of music played, and, and it will be brilliant. Chris Yeager, thank you very much. Well, I ain't got no The ensemble will be at Huntington Hall on Saturday the 26th of May and you can find more information on that and all of the acts coming to Worcester Live in the Worcestershire uh, Live brochure available at the Library, uh, Tourist Information Centre of course and other outlets through the city. And that uh, concludes our programme for tonight so I'd like to thank very much Brian, Alan, Kate and from me, I'd like to say very good night, and we shall end once more with spring in the optimistic hope that it might improve. Bye bye, all.